0: It's Madison the Black Eagle, and here's a highlight from today's show.
1: There will be activities starting this week that will go all the way to August 28th. There will be a movement on John Lewis Day that my colleagues will uh, talk about. This will be a summer of activism, a summer of getting back in the streets, a summer of saying to the Senate and the Congress, you may be going home but it's going to be warmer politically than you think on the ground. And we want that to be made clear. It will culminate August 28th.
0: That was a statement by uh, Al Sharpton, who you'll be able to talk to uh, later today here on Sirius XM Urban View on the Al Sharpton show. Mark Moriel also issued... um, uh can we hit can we hit uh, his statement if you don't mind Darrell? Uh, this was the head of the National Urban League who also uh, met with uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris uh, yesterday. You know play that would you please
1: uh, We came here uh, at the invitation of the president uh, to underscore the state of emergency that this country faces when it comes to democracy. Democracy is under vigorous, vicious, and sinister attack, beginning with the events of June, January 6th at the Capitol and cascading like a tsunami through state legislatures across the nation that have a singular intent, which is to suppress, deny, and thwart the votes of black people, brown people, young people, people who are disabled, and many other Americans who live with great disadvantage in this country.
0: And with me is my good friend, Wade Henderson, Interim President and CEO of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. Um, Anything, Wade, that you would add to those two statements that uh, came yesterday after the meeting uh, with President uh, Biden and Vice President Harris? Uh, well, first, good morning, Joe. Uh, it's a real pleasure being with you and uh, and your listeners.
2: Delighted. Uh, let me say I thought both Mark Morial and Reverend Sharpton did a terrific job in outlining the crisis facing our nation. You know, American democracy is really in peril. And uh, this is a crisis unlike anything we have seen since the Jim Crow era. Uh, now, it's precipitated, of course, by the combined effect of of four separate challenges that uh, we have faced as a nation, beginning, of course, with Trump's big lie uh, that he told in the aftermath of the November election uh, that somehow the election was stolen. Uh, He had been preparing for that uh, with repeated statements to that effect over two years. Uh, It continued with the attempted coup d'etat on January 6th, where uh, uh, right-wing Trump-meesters attempted to overthrow a duly elected American government. It continued further uh, with Republican-controlled state legislatures in states like Georgia and Florida and Texas, and now Arizona with the audit process that they have imposed to reexamine uh, the ballots of the election. And then uh, last week's Supreme Court decision that further gutted the Voting Rights Act. Uh, when you take all four of those together, uh, this is an unprecedented uh, era uh, for American democracy, and the threat is real, and we have to act as if it is. So right. I think yesterday, after an incredibly, uh, I thought, important meeting uh, with President uh, Biden and Vice President Harris, and by the way, senior advisors like Cedric Richmond, the former congressman from Louisiana who is now head of public engagement, and Susan Rice, the uh, uh, noted a uh, foreign policy expert who now directs domestic policy for the administration. I mean, this was a really high-level meeting, and I thought it was important and noteworthy, important for the reasons that my colleagues have already said, but noteworthy because it was President Biden who convened the meeting. He recognizes, as we all do, this threat that we are facing today is unlike anything we've seen, and he wanted to hear from us about our views about what was needed, and how uh, we had proposed to respond. So we talked first about uh, why it was so important to pass both the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. The For the People Act is a bill that is now stalled in the United States Senate because of a filibuster. Republicans have chosen to block even a debate on what is going on around the country and instead sought to cut it off by refusing to allow the bill to move forward. That has got to change. And then secondly, we talked about the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. Now here's the difference between the two bills. Okay. The John the John Lewis bill would repair the Voting Rights Act, first damaged in twenty thirteen by a Supreme Court decision called Shelby County versus Holder. And that gutted a key provision of the bill which required that states with a history of past discrimination submit any changes that they propose to make to their election procedures in advance to the Department of Justice so that they can review them to make sure that those changes don't have a disparate impact, meaning a significant effect on particular communities like black and brown and indigenous and new Americans and so forth. And that provision was gutted uh, because there was a formula that determined what states would be covered, and the court said that formula was invalid. So we've been trying to fix that now for eight years. Then you turn around, and the Supreme Court got another key provision that allowed us to challenge state uh, actions case by case, very difficult, very expensive, but it was still a pathway to overturning unconstitutional provisions. And that, too, has been gutted. So we now have to change it. So fixing the Voting Rights Act is, is really what the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Bill is all about, and the Voting Rights Act was first enacted in 1965, but has been one of the most important civil rights bills ever passed uh, in this country. The second bill, the For the People Act, would require provisions that uh, set standards for voting, meaning you could have early voting, you could have mail-in voting, you could have provisions that were adopted During the pandemic, that enabled our voters, our people, to go to the ballots without risking what we have seen in many states, where we're standing in line for four and five hours at a time and trying to cast a vote and being exposed to COVID, uh, the virus, and wondering if it's safe. That, of course, in and of itself was a discouragement for voters, but much to the credit, much to the credit of. Uh, American voters, our people, we turned out in record numbers, record numbers unseen in the history of our country at a time when the pandemic raged hot and heavy. So this was something that, you know, really uh, caused uh, Trump and his supporters to say, well, look, we can never have that again. We can never allow voters to cast Mm -hmm. their ballots because when we do, uh, we're going to lose let me ask you. Let
0: me, let me interrupt just a second. Yeah. Let me interrupt just a second. Sure. Uh, and I appreciate you being so crystal clear with explaining the differences of the two. Th- let's uh-huh. go back to the John Lewis bill. Uh-huh. Would in in connection with what Texas is trying to do with their state legislative effort, um, not mailing out. Uh, absentee ballots and the whole nine yards uh, gutting Mm -hmm. souls Mm -hmm. to the polls. Would the John Lewis bill, uh, what's the uh, proper word? Would it supersede or stop Texas from implementing that?
2: That bill, the John Lewis bill, would apply going forward. It would not address what has already happened in states like Georgia and Texas. And that's part of the problem. That's yeah. why the For the People Act is also needed, because that bill would stop
0: okay. what is happening there, in this I state see. okay and would okay. overturn. It. It, so, so that, in other words, Texas is both. doing this thing, but mm-hmm. if the if the For the People bill gets passed, or mm-hmm. when it gets passed, I like to think positively. Um, think positive. the, Yeah it 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 would it would stop Texas from from doing what they're trying to pass now.
2: That's exactly right. That's gotcha. exactly right. It would make it much more difficult to do that. You right. know, uh, you already have 14 states, Joe, that have adopted 22 or 28. I, I apologize, 28 regressive provisions that have attempted to prevent uh, voters from coming to the polls in the same way that we did uh, in 2020. Uh, those states would be uh, over. Those provisions would be overturned by the For the People Act because it is very clear that uh, they were intended uh, to prevent uh, voters from casting their ballot and having access to the ballot being heard. You know, look, voting really is, Joe, the language of democracy. If you don't vote, you don't count. And if you are blocked from voting, then, of course, your voice can't be heard. And when we had um, record numbers of African Americans and uh, other voters who came out, and cast their ballot. Uh, What Republicans saw, because look, we're not partisan, and we're not saying that every black vote is a Democratic vote, we're not. You should vote for whomever you think serves your interests best. But in this instance, it was clear that uh, black voters had a preference. The Republican Party felt that, look, no, we we can't have that. And if you can't, uh, uh, you know, block people, if, if you can't win with the strength of your ideas then we're going to win by making sure that we shrink the base of voters that can actually cast ballots. And here's the real rub, Joe. This is not about making sure that every black person in the country can't vote, although if that happened, I'm sure many of these uh, sponsors of these initiatives would be okay with that. But what the real purpose is is to shave off 1% or 2% of mm. the vote. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, they guarantee gotcha. that they will win uh, right. almost every election because they're so close. So that's the thing that really uh, bugs me. Here's the other thing, Joe. You look at these lines and you you say, Don, why is it so hard to vote in a black precinct? Why do you have lines that last for four and five hours? Then you have somebody pass a law that says you can't give somebody water if they're standing in line. Well, you know, if you get out of line, you lose your space. So imagine uh, standing in line. You're an elderly voter. You know, you're already fragile. You're trying to cast your vote. You want to be a good citizen. And, you know, you're denied the right to have water. That's outrageous. But here's the real deal. Starting in the the aftermath of the, uh, the court decision back in 2013, the Shelby County decision, many states decided to close precincts because those precincts served communities that, as far as they're concerned, they didn't want to vote. So, hundreds of precincts in Georgia, for example, were closed between 2013 and 2020. That meant, and and at the same time, there was an expansion in the electorate. There were about 2 million new voters that came online between 2016 and 2020. So, you have a larger voting population than ever before. Mm -hmm. You have fewer places to vote, and the state has decided not to invest. In election administration, so they don 't rectify the problem that they themselves have created, and it ends up with these ridiculously long lines where black people vote. you know it takes you four hours to vote, and in some other community that is wealthier and whiter, it takes you thirty minutes. Well, you know, come on man, that's outrageous, so right, you know this is really a, a a fight for the soul of America, yeah. this is a fight that uh, I think every American has to wage. Now, we've decided, and I thought Reverend Sharpton said, look, the summer is gonna generate street heat on this issue. This is democracy summer, Joe. We're gonna have to stand up and defend democracy like never before. And once again, it falls on our shoulders. Now, Joe, you dealt, look, when you and I first met, you were registering voters up in in, uh, Detroit, okay, and in Michigan. You know all about this going back to your young days. You know that if you don't get people registered, educate them on where they should cast their ballots, make sure they understand why it's important to do so, you'll lose thousands of voters who might be able to sway the outcome of an election. And unfortunately, for every vote that is not cast, that is the equivalent of casting a vote for your enemies, because what were all people who disagree with you? They're not enemies. They're American citizens, but they disagree with you. But it affects policies like public education and the dollars spent for education. It affects jobs. It affects all sorts of public policies that are decided by voters. And we've got to show the connection between why you vote and the benefits that you have from voting. If you don't do that, then people don't understand the importance of what we're talking about. Wayne Henderson
0: is – is with us uh, Wade Henderson is the interim president and CEO of the Leadership Conference on civil and, and human rights so let me <clears throat> let me ask Wade um, you brought up the public policy and and, 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 and that's clear to this audience of, of social activists, political activists um, what did you ask? what did the the group ask of president biden and and i should also point out i i believe uh vice president harris announced that there would be 25 million dollars spent uh, allocated by the dnc uh to address this issue uh so there's two questions here one is how is that 25 million going to be spent and two what did the group of civil rights leaders, including yourself, Wade Henderson, ask of the president? OK, first, let me take the second question, Gerald Buck, that $25 million. Well, OK. Very pleased,
2: very pleased that the Democratic National Committee has allocated $25 million to help register and educate voters. And uh, the vice president made the announcement yesterday at Howard University, my alma mater. It was great that uh, she did that. Very proud of her. But having said that, Joe, first of all, while the 25 million is nothing to sneeze at, it is not nearly enough to uh, help, uh, you know, uh, register voters in significant numbers to make a huge difference. But secondly, and perhaps more importantly, we're not going to be able to organize our way out of this problem. Now, I'm not discouraging voters. I want every voter we uh, know who is within the uh, sound of our voices, Joe. Uh, to go out and make sure that they're registered register their family members who are eligible and get people your next door neighbors and everybody. We want as many people as possible to register. But even if we amount to a, a really vigorous campaign, there's a real question in my mind of whether we can outorganize these restrictions that we're talking about such that we can make a difference in the outcome. That is why the legislation that we've discussed is so important and we know that and we reinforce that to the white house what we said is look guys we need your help mr president in making sure that the uh, congress will act and it's really not congress in general it is the senate republicans mm-hmm. we need to be clear about that they're that right. standing in the way of our progress so what we have said to him in response to your first question Mr. President, we want you to do all you can within the powers of your office to make sure this happens. It starts by lifting up the importance of this issue, making sure that the American people know that from the President of the United States, this is the most important issue facing our nation right now. Because if we slip from being a democracy into an authoritarian form of government, meaning where decisions are made by a small group of powerful individuals against the interests of ordinary citizens, then our democracy is gone. It's very fragile. As you saw from the January 6th as the so-called insurrection, I call it an attempted coup d'etat because Mm -hmm. it was an effort to overthrow a Mm duly elected government by force. Yeah. You know, and what we have said before, Joe, and I just want to repeat this: Look, if that audience had uh, the the crowd uh, that attacked the Capitol on January sixth had been black, uh, oh, yeah. there yeah. would have been yeah. so many uh, deaths Dead. that Dead. Yeah. afternoon that it, we could we couldn't count them all. Oh, we'd I mean, still be how, cleaning up, yeah.
0: you know, bodies. Yeah,
2: but you know, wait,
0: wait let me uh, let me uh, as you were talking about what you asked of the president, and historically, mm. my mind flashed back. Uh, to uh, Johnson and the Voting Rights uh-huh. Act uh-huh. where there, two things happen: One, um, make me do it. I mean, this was the the, the language that, that, you know, when King asked Johnson for folks who don't know the history, we need this Voting Rights Act. He was reluctant because they just passed the sixty four Civil Rights Act. Okay, make me do it. And that sort of speaks to what Al Sharpton might be talking about in others. But then you said something that you asked the president to use whatever they, the the folks asked the president use what power you have. Johnson had to deal with staunch and you know this. I'm just saying this for the sake of the audience staunch segregationist who and they weren't about to vote for it. But th- but you know what? The president has a lot of trump cards. These mm-hmm. folks mm-hmm. need roads they need dams built they need and johnson didn't he he kind of he he sort of played that that trump card didn't he can play that he played that card he played that okay card. but but can, let, me, can, let me pick can, up and i only have a couple minutes of min, a four, you know a, a two or three minutes left can biden play that same card he Can yes he can first of all uh, remind
2: uh, our audience joe uh two or three days after bloody sunday when uh, John Lewis was almost killed in the Selma to Montgomery march, Lyndon Johnson convened a joint session of Congress to give a speech on voting rights and the power of the vote. It was one of the most powerful historic moments that defined that era. We want the president to speak on the issue as well. We want the president to use the bully pulpit to elevate this issue uh, in, in the minds of the public. Secondly, you're right. He has resources that he can use, and we expect him, and with hope. And he, I think, is inclined to do that. Uh, He agreed with much of what we said with regard to the threat. So he is going to use his office. But here's the other point, Joe, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention it. Look, we are all going to the streets to have events. So next week, black women, led by um, Melanie Campbell of the National Coalition on Black Civic Participation and the Black Women's Agenda. And uh, Dr. Uh, Janetta Cole, now president of the National Council of Negro Women, are organizing a week of action in Washington, virtual town halls, various activities on Capitol Hill. It's going to be big and in person. On the 17th, which is next Saturday, not this coming tomorrow, but next Saturday a week, is the first anniversary of Mr. Lewis's passing, of John Lewis's passing. We are organizing Good Trouble Vigils Around the country, about 40 or 50 cities, they're going to have vigils beginning at dusk to celebrate the life of Mr. Lewis and to recommit ourselves to the right to vote. We are endorsed in that effort by the John and Lillian Miles Lewis Foundation. That is Mr. Lewis's foundation that is committed to this effort. And Okay, I have less than than two minutes.
0: Yeah, Yeah, less than two minutes. He's going to do that.
2: So, look, this is all good. Uh, I'm glad you're doing it. Ask one last question before we jump, if
0: you have. It. Well, no, I, I mean this information is is cr- critical, and your in your explanation and what happened in that meeting is is just what this audience needs. And the only thing I ask of you keep keep me posted, keep my audience posted on on this, and we we will call on our folks to participate uh, 110%. Wade Henderson. Thank you. You, I mean, I, I, boy, did we get the right person to explain <laughs> no, to us what happened yesterday? I, I so appreciate it. President, interim you, president, CEO of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. And we'll talk again, Wade. Have a great Such weekend. That's a pleasure. Thank All you, right. Joe. You too. Take care, guys. Bye-bye.
3: My dad had two weapons. He could either run like the wind or that razor-sharp tongue of his could lay into you.
2: Kids can to pick on me a lot. My daddy's not home. You know I'm on relief. I haven't got him with me. So how can I get him with me? I laid home in bed one night and I figured it out. I started making jokes about me not having no daddy. How poor we were. And then I noticed that once you get a man laughing
0: with you, it's hard for him to laugh at you. Well, that's just not even a snapshot. (laughs) I mean, that's just a morsel of what people saw um, July 4th. And let me welcome uh, Christian Gregory, one of the producers, and the director extraordinaire, Andre Gaines. Thank you both. We finally got this interview together. I, I appreciate it, man. <laughs> and, and Andre, I know you're on the—you know—you're on the uh, West Coast, so I, I don't know how early you rise every morning. But thank you for uh, getting up to 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 be with us. Now, let me understand and then cor- correct me if I'm wrong. Is this your first d- dictatorial role? I mean, as a director, this, uh, this yeah. uh, really?
4: Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's my directorial debut. I've, uh, I've been a producer for, for quite some time now, uh, nearly 15 years, uh, producer and, and investor financier and, in films. That was sort of the main, uh, thing that I, you know, was doing for quite some time after, after film school launched a company that did. Animation and visual effects for a while, and then moved into into uh, producing and and finance. And so this this project was something that I kind of had in mind, and um, you know just looked at it and said, I'm 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 the best person to direct this. I mean, they, normally as a producer, I'm I'm spending half my year looking for a directors. For different different projects, you know whether they're movies or TV shows or whatever. But in this case, it just was uh, kind of the most organic thing for for me to uh, direct it, and and I you know couldn't be more thrilled with the outcome. To be honest with you, what
0: what what clicked with you that made you say, "Okay, I'm going to direct this." The one and only Dick Gregory. I mean. You obviously had to talk it over with people, and was there any uh, blowback on the part of producers and others and fi- people who had to finance it?
4: Well, I mean, that's the thing. I, I financed it, so it was it was all me. No, that, take, that, <laughs> that takes care so of that.
0: <laughs> that takes care of that problem. Yeah, I mean, me
4: and my uh, uh, producer Valerie Edwards, uh, who you you've met before. Right. Um, and uh, you know she um, helped co-finance it, and uh, and we worked together for you know for years, and so it really was not a anything strange. I mean, honestly, Joe, the 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 issue with this project when when I first announced that we were doing this, and, and Christian can tell you the same, is that there were about three high-profile, very high-profile filmmakers. In the decades preceding it, that were trying to make a movie about Dick Gregory. Like, I wasn't the first person with this original idea. And they all reached out really in support once the project was announced and said, you know, we're not here to compete with you. We're not any of those types of things. We're actually here to support you. And the issue that they had of not being able to make this, this film, other than just timing being a factor was financing. They just couldn't get the money together uh, mm-hmm. to, to do it. And so I just said, I'll, I'll finance it. And I'll just go ahead and, and finance the movie. And that's what we did until Showtime bought it. And, um, yeah,
0: and Isn't you know. that quite is, is Andre, isn't that quite unusual? And, uh, correct me if I'm wrong in what we often hear about Hollywood being a cutthroat industry.
4: Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's not entirely unusual from a directing or directorial debut standpoint when it comes to black folks, particularly in our, our business. I mean, there's sort of countless examples. I think of, of, of directors, like Lee, you know, Ava DuVernay, uh, uh, you know, even Lee Daniels to a certain degree. I mean, there's there's uh, countless examples. I think of black directors going and financing their their first project. Generally, it's not at this level. I mean, this was a much more expensive proposition than a than sort of a typical uh, first film that you would make. But it's not. Uh, entirely unusual, and and under that circumstance, I was initially going to finance the movie and put another director in it because I was so busy with other films. But uh, it it literally took the first meeting of me and Dick Gregory for mm-hmm. me to decide that okay, I've got to I've got to make this movie, I, especially after he intellectually haze me as as Christian would say. <laughs> times. You guys, you guys <laughs> see, after to, he beat, you, beat me up a little bit, you know. Lord, I was like you guys I, he beat to. me up. I've I've gone through the middle passage here. <laughs> I can make this movie now, you know? Like he's he sort of anointed me in that way. I
0: I have been using in discussing this, um I've been using that um, that phrase uh intellectual hazing. <laughs> Um, I, I I'm a little bit more colorful <laughs> with uh, uh with that. So so Christian, this leads me to then ask you, as Andre pointed out, there you know, there there were several projects being considered. Why why this one? What was the difference?
3: I mean, just a great question and um Sherry and Jill, I first got a disclaimer you know, i got to let folks know that don't already know that the Madisons and Gregorys are family here. So this is the first family show that I've been on to discuss this, Joe. So thank you, sir. That's a great question. You both know my dad incredibly well. You know how important the financing aspect of it was to him and what really the real affinity to Andre. First was his youth. I mean, Dick Gregory always gravitated to college campuses, universities. That's where he spent a disproportionate amount of his time lecturing, sharing, teaching, and growing and developing himself. So there were many, many um, attempts, three or four that Andre mentioned that really got some traction under it. But part of it is just Dick Gregory's story, just incredibly difficult to tell. Um, especially in a one-off documentary, a lot of the conversations with Andre in the first three years, including my dad, he was hands-on with this initially. He would frequently say, so many interviewers have said, have you learned anything from this? I said, of course. Andre did such a deep dive in his team. Um, my dad would tap me on the shoulder in, in very colorful Dick Gregory language that I won't use here. Um, did I really do that? I mean, his brain was almost too full to account for all of just the kind of, um, you know, iconic moments in his life that he had for, probably forgotten more than he remembered. So this project for him was as therapeutic as I'm now seeing it be for all of the people who love Dick Gregory or just learning about Dick Gregory. And just on behalf of the Gregory family, every opportunity I have to thank Andre Gaines, I do so. But you saw it, Joe, it's a real treat
0: and every time a hey, hey, andre and and both and christian you both can comment uh every time i see it um it's about 3 times now there's always something i missed or i picked up that that uh i didn't catch the first time or the uh second time well, uh-huh. is is uh-huh. that the experience and and i know for most people they they saw it uh, july 4th when it uh pre uh, premiered on showtime but it, it, did you, did you often with people who have seen it multiple times do you often get that type of response
4: oh definitely yeah uh, Andre. I, I can probably mm-hmm. speak for christian even a little bit on this i mean i think that m- lots of people uh emailed me uh, you know, message me on Instagram or wherever and just were saying the same thing is that they really when they get a chance to watch it again, it's like, oh I'm gonna watch it again, I'm gonna watch it tomorrow. And and they and they watch it again, then they they discover something new. And that that goes for the the people who knew Dick Gregory and for the ones who did not know Dick Gregory. And What's also interesting to me, and this was something I think uh, you and I, Joe, talked about very early on, and I, I'd like to let your audience know that you were literally the first person outside of myself and, and my team and, and Christian, the, the first observer to actually see any version of this film uh, in your living room. I, I remember it like it was yesterday to see a version of this movie. At the time, was a very short, like seven to ten minute sequence that we ended up actually showing at the funeral of Dick Gregory um, when we came into into D.C. And what was surprising to me is that the the sort of last thing I'll say about this was surprising to me is the amount of people who did know Dick Gregory were totally in his orbit, close relationships, friends that did not know all of this stuff about him. And I take for granted as, 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 uh, at the time, particularly as a young man sort of take for granted that, you know, YouTube has kind of existed forever. And the truth of the matter is it hasn't. And so then you can't, if you're a part of Dick Gregory's life in the eighties, or you're part of his life in the seventies, or you're part of his life in the nineties, you may not, those, those things may not cross over with one another, and so the awareness of all of these different facets of his life are not totally uh, present or, or obvious to you. And so I, I always find that really fascinating when I hear people who knew him.
0: I, I have. Uh, I've gotten emails or whatever, you know, the social media is of the day. Uh, one one I got, Christian um, and Andre, one was um, uh, I didn't know he did a movie. <laughs> and, and, uh, there's, <laughs> there's a clip, but the, the backstory is what I found fascinating. It, it wasn't just the, the clip from the movie, but who wants to speak to this, uh, Christian, you might, and, and anybody jump in. Um, it helped mm-hmm. to pay for his, uh, health insurance. Th- and that, so, uh, and I that's what I remember him to, you know, right. in our living room talking about, he said, man, I did this movie and I didn't realize that once you got into a movie and the and the union, you you got health insurance. And uh, who wants to comment it, on it, that? It, it's, even, it's even better than that. So naturally, at my parents'
3: age, they have Medicare, that everyone by law is required to have. Um, right. Self-paying for insurance is profoundly expensive at my parents' age, and my dad was a cancer survivor. So it just made sense for them to pay out-of-pocket for their health care. When Rob Schneider invited him to do the hot chick, and my, dad, my dad's my dad been a SAG member his entire life, but what activates your SAG coverage is a certain financial threshold worth of work annually. And Dick Gregory, by his own desires, hadn't done film um, or television for quite some time. So he was pleasantly surprised when he received in the mail um, his, you know, the United Health Care card that was a Cadillac of health insurance. And so here's the beauty of that story. He shared that with Rob Schneider. Rob said, oh, really? And Rob was being humble in the film. He went and hired my dad again immediately the next year to have him shoot a piece that he knew he was not going to use for the film pay him that wow. minimum threshold. So he actually got two years of that Cadillac-level insurance. So it wasn't like Dick and Lillian Gregg just didn't have insurance. They didn't have a premium insurance. Right. So they right. had their primary. Now they had a secondary. And it really did change when my mom had an injury. It profoundly changed the quality of care that she had access to. And, of course, why would, you know, why would Rob Schneider know that? But my dad's always been just such an open book, and having so much gratitude, that was never his reason for doing it. And it just was so many of things that Dick Gregory always says, the universe will provide. He meant that. And Dick Gregory mm-hmm. was digital in an analog world. When the rest of us were deep in an analog world, he saw a different vision. Conversation with Dick Gregory always had a boomerang effect. Ten minutes later, you felt different about it. An hour later, the next morning, it hit you differently. This movie is no different. People have watched it. I had one person say they watched it eight times in a row with their family, and they saw something different every time. And quite honestly, I think Andre and his team, they were purposeful with that. There's a lot of little Easter eggs. There's a lot of nuggets that are in there with the colorization segment at the beginning. Every time. The human brain can only take so much. So it takes multiple viewings to really, truly comprehend and appreciate, A, the movie, but also the life story of
0: the man Andre, how many hours, and maybe I'm being, um, a little conservative, maybe I should say days of, as we, as uh, the commoners say film, you think you left on the floor?
4: Oh God, <laughs> it's like, I probably left a whole movie on the floor. Um, it was, it was really difficult. I mean, like, I'm not going to lie. It's probably one of the most difficult. I did a project earlier this year that was on HBO called The Lady in the Dale. I produced that project that was original to my company, Cinemation. We teamed up with Mark and Jade Duplass and, and, and did it over at HBO. And I thought that that was a complicated story and probably ranked amongst some of the more complicated films or, or, or shows that I've ever produced. This takes the cake by far. I mean, it's, it's, it just was, there was no comparison, hands down. And a lot of it, you know, has to do with the old adage that uh, any filmmaker you talk to or any of my, you know, mentors, teachers, things like that were just like, every film breaks your heart just a little bit. It's, it's, it's like a child that you raise and you nurture and you, you eventually just have to, Put it out into the world and realize that that's the best that that you've got. And in this case, it really broke my heart because there were so many stories that we could not fit in. And when it comes to telling an engaging story that keeps people interested and on the edge of their seats, that sort of thing, you have to make those those really really hard decisions. And so we we amassed by the time, um, you know, i say about earlier this year when we. Uh, or late last year when we sold it to Showtime. By that time, we had amassed probably over a 1,000 or 1,100 hours of Mm. content of Dick Gregory. And then even after Showtime, we found a whole slew of additional uh, footage and audio and photos, and it just kept coming. I mean, Christian was actively, actively involved in this. I mean, his credit on this film is not a vanity credit at yeah, all. Like this, this man was that. working on this movie. Yeah. You know? Yeah,
0: and and then and I know we were at the um, uh one of the film festivals and um you made the point that people started uh showing up with videotape. And photographs that yeah. they obviously had <laughs> had hidden away, or they had they had discovered it. That that was I tell that that was interesting to find out. And and I don't know whether you could use them or couldn't use them. Well, that's the interesting thing too is
4: that and and you know this you know probably better than than most people is that Dick Gregory never restricted anybody from from filming him or recording him or photographing right. him you know, uh, uh, Hugh Hefner was somebody that he had a, a deep relationship with and respect for. And Hugh Hefner had a scribe and a videographer that followed him around daily and cataloged literally every facet of his life. And he's like, I'm going to donate this to the Smithsonian when I die, which is what he did. And Dick Gregory was the opposite. He was the man of the people. The people were uh, the ones responsible for documenting his life. And so Folks would show up all the time. Just you know, hey, I heard you working on this. Are you working on that? And and another person that I would want to say uh, deserves some credit here too is um, Ed Schmidt, Professor Ed Schmidt, who was yeah. another one of Dick Gregory's biographers, who was in the film, and he just would continually dig up stuff, one thing after <laughs> the other, and it was it was just it was it was it was overwhelming, but yeah. in a good way. You know, I, an embarrassment I, I, of riches, as they say. Yeah,
0: I'm. I'm. I. You know, we could do a whole hour on this, I and mean, maybe one day we will. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. now, let me. I do have to ask this question: for those that did not see it on uh, Showtime uh, the fourth of July, uh, will they have an opportunity uh, later on to see it? Yeah,
4: it's yes, streaming. Absolutely. So it's, it's, it's streaming currently streaming on demand streaming.
3: right now.
0: Okay, it's on yep. demand. And will Showtime be uh, uh, uh viewing it again, do you know? Or is yeah, it they, on
4: they'll be okay. airing it they'll be airing it um again actually today. So I think they're airing it at the same time, uh nine PM Eastern today, six PM okay. uh on the west coast. So I think they're airing it. Uh and they're doing that in rotation uh I think several days in a row over the course okay. of the month, but it is on okay. demand.
0: Okay, good. Um final question for you, Christian. Um and and I never should say final question because it always depends on the last <laughs> answer. Uh, um what did your what did your mother think? What did Lily now I interviewed her. Yes, um, I heard the interview. It was okay. amazing. It yeah, was amazing. But, did she say, I mean, in your words, what did she say? What did she say to the family, if anything, you know, all 11 of you? It's just, it's, it, it, was, it was surreal for me, and I'm certain it was
3: surreal for her. When we sat and watched the Broadway play base on my dad's life, my parents had a pinch-yourself moment together. Lily and Gregory is definitively having a pinch like she said on the interview with you, when she first saw herself from that interview, she was kind of shocked and almost forgot. She, too, was shoulder to shoulder with Dick Gregory for most oh, yeah. of her life. A lot of people think she was at the farm the entire time. We had a lot of help, extended family, not workers, extended older family. Um, and my mom was out there, as you know, preaching to the choir here, getting arrested and shoulder to shoulder with my oh, dad. Yeah. So she forgot a lot of this, too. This was a recalibration for her in the most beautiful of ways. I mean, Here she's lost her life partner and to have so many tributes being paid to yeah. this man she's loved for her lifetime, produced 11 children with, as she pointed out during her interview, um, which was a beautiful segment. Um, yes, yeah, she's, she's chattier than ever these days. She's so conversational. She is offsetting the loss of Dick Gregory a bit, and occasionally, I'm sure she won't mind me saying, using some of her uh, using some of Dick Gregory's colorful language. And it's a blessing. <laughs> it's an absolute blessing. It fills <laughs> some of the voids that have been lost, yeah. it since, since, have been created since my dad's departure, as this film does. So many folks are going to, but the entire family, I mean, we still get yeah. goosebumps. I mean, I mean, we're all different, so we see it differently, but differently, the collective yeah. opinion is we've yeah. all learned a ton about our dad, and we will continue to do. And these projects like this are just a blessing.
0: I got to tell you, though, the one story I wish on, I don't know if you ever got this story or not, but and Dick used to tell this joke all the time, that he, I don't know which one of your siblings it was, but he had been invited to the White House, and your mother was expecting, like, big time, and he, he, he wanted her to stay and spend the night so she could be the first babe, black baby born. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: At, at, at matter of fact, Joe, here's the crazy thing. My, my
3: brother who passed away, that was little Richard that was there. So Richard Clackett Jr. Right? was who my mom was pregnant with at that time. And it was JFK. JFK, was, they were, matter yeah, of fact, it was at that meeting that JFK introduced dick gregory to dr martin luther king and their friendship mushroom from there so a lot happened in that moment again all of these stories with dick gregory they always have boomerangs and they're much more complicated than what they see on team on first yeah
0: yeah well andre first of all uh, we we had the opportunity to meet for the first time and let me let me just say um andre is and i have to wrap this up you are one of the most delightful people I've ever met from Hollywood. <laughs> and you and oh, your thank wife. You. <laughs> no, I mean really. You just just you were genuine I, I gotta tell you, when Andre came over here to do the interview, I didn't know who in the hell Andre was. And he was just <laughs> like, you know, so and so, can we do this? Can we do that? And and then i find out he this is big time this dude is big you know later <laughs> on i found out but just the nicest mannerism uh, about you and i met your your beautiful delightful wife and and the same and there's nothing i can say about christian that i um that would that would not at all be enough uh, compared to how you dealt with your father's career uh, sacrificing your own as a doctor and, uh, and particularly in, in the latter years and, uh, you know, being there with them. Um, Hey guys, thank you so much. I pleasure. wanted to do this. Well, thank,
4: thank you. Yeah. But the, the, you, uh, the feeling is mutual Joe for sure. Uh, you've been a, 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 major supporter of this project from the beginning, a huge blessing. Like I said, you're literally the first person that saw any version of this project is very different you know, very different from what we showed you, what ended up becoming the final product, but that's the creative process. It just little by little, you start to develop things and you and your wife and your, your son, I remember meeting him at, at the funeral, just everybody's been such a huge, huge blessing on this project. I couldn't be more thrilled of the outcome and it's, it's just been fantastic. So thank you and, and God bless you.
0: Yeah, and you guys, uh, make sure that I'm going to push it for an Image Awards. It's got to to get an Image Award, you know, and I'll do my best. And anything else that's out there that award-wise, too. Uh, Thank you, guys. Okay, God bless Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Okay, we'll talk later. Thank you. Take good care. Thank you. God bless